Welcome to the Stop Ruining My Childhood podcast. A sometimes nostalgic, sometimes cynical look back at pop culture. Join us as we revisit movies, cartoons, and live-action TV of the 80s and 90s and ask the question... Does this hold up? Or did I just ruin my childhood? My name is Megan. And I'm Steve. And today we are reviewing Field of Dreams... This was our summer movie pick that we picked in, like, March. Yes, we did. <laughs> and now it's July and possibly August when you're actually listening to this. And um, you can find Field of Dreams a couple different places, but we found it on Amazon Prime. So that's the link that I'm going to put on our blog. And before we get to Field of Dreams... We have our always... Sadly, non-sponsored. No, our always popular (laughs) non-sponsored snack segment. Yes. And what snack do we have today, Steve Hall? In theme with Field of Dreams, we're doing Big League Chew. The bubble gum that's packaged like chewing tobacco. Right. So you can look like your favorite 80s, 70s, 80s baseball player back in the days when they used to sometimes chew tobacco. And spit it right before they went to bat. Right. Yeah. So you have some and I'll I'll give a little bit of fun facts about this. Oh, it really does look like chewing tobacco. Here's my biggest surprise about Big League Chew that it was thought of in 1977 and didn't come to market until 1980. Oh. So it's funny because, like, being born when we were born, this is just a candy that, to me, has just always been around. So I thought, oh, I can really smell the bubblegum. It's very <laughs> bubblegumlicious. I thought that this was, like, you know, some of the other candies we've done are, like, they start in the 50s or the 60s. And I just figured, like, since baseball has been so popular for so long... That that would be the case, but it, it's really not. So it was actually created by baseball players. Portland Mavericks had a left-handed pitcher, Rob Nelson, and a bat boy, to- Todd Field. And they got to chatting about how it would be fun if they had gum for kids that was like their chewing tobacco. So they pitched it to the Wrigley Company. And a couple years later, the product came out in 1980. Since then, they've sold over 800 million pouches. So we have the traditional bubblegum flavor. <laughs> Steve's blowing a bubble right now. There are also grape, sour apple, um, different things like that. And the packaging is designed by artist Bill Mayer. Now, it's not made by Wrigley anymore. It's made by the Ford Gum and Machine Company in Akron, New York. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I lived there for a little bit. So it's kind of neat. I did not know that that's where this... I knew I know where the company is, but I didn't know that that was like the base Okay. for the company. The slogan throughout the 80s still featured today, you're in the big leagues when you're into big league chew. That's right. Did you chew this as a kid? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love big league chew. I'll tell you, you why. Baseball. It has nothing to do with baseball. I did... Oh. We, we did in Little League, everyone used to... You know, only the cool people brought packs of Big League Chew. They come, of course, for anyone who's knows Big League Chew, right? It comes in a pack, and they're all, like, shredded pieces of bubble gum, mm-hmm. right? And so you're able to take as much as you want, yeah. kind of like I just did. So I have this huge ball of gum in my mouth now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which made it last longer. It has a very strong taste yeah, compared to some sticks of gum, as you're getting right now. 
Um, but also, it's great for blowing bubbles. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times, sticks of gum stink for blowing bubbles. Yeah. And even like bubble yum came in little squares. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't always enough to blow bubbles with. Because there's so much, you can blow really good bubbles. Bubble yum also, the flavor was good, but it lasted like six seconds. I have to say, we tried bubble tape, one of our earlier episodes. We did. <laughs> I'm chomping so much. Sorry, guys. We tried bubble tape in one of our earlier episodes. I did not like the flavor of that at all. The bubblegum flavor there was like too, like, I'm allergic to mint, so mm-hmm. I have bubblegum toothpaste at the dentist, and that's what it reminded me of. This has a really nice flavor. And as you said, I can see... <laughs> We're blowing bubbles right now, so... I can see the appeal because I don't think I've ever actually had this. This is like candy cigarettes, one of those mm. things that my mom and dad did not approve of. Right. Because it is. it looks like chewing tobacco. Mm. But I can see the appeal because when you chew gum as a kid, sometimes you have to do like three or four pieces. Yeah. And then sometimes the flavor goes, it gets really tough in your mouth. This is really nice and soft. I kind of like it. And the the packs are like a the ins the packs are like a foil pack almost on the inside. Mm-hmm. So actually, you could take how much you want, and then you could like like cinch the top or roll it up, and it stayed pretty fresh. Yeah, I forgot to mention we talked about Pop Tarts last episode with mm-hmm. Quantum Leap. Same Mylar packaging allow right. them to do this because as steve just said it stays fresh for longer yeah which is awesome too you got original which is which is good as you were saying that flavor is pretty good my favorite is grape which yeah. is very grape i couldn't find the grape i looked mm-hmm. for it i couldn't find it, it i liked grape soda growing up i like grape like strong like candy fake grape flavor right and bigly choose grape is a really good one they do have a few other flavors and things but you know the interesting part is Growing up, like I said, when I was a kid, we had it playing baseball, just playing around, running around the neighborhood, things like that. And But, of course, you knew where it came from, right? That it was like supposed to be like, you know, the baseball players who were doing chewing tobacco. Later, as an adult, I coached Little League for a long time. I coached high school baseball. Yeah. And the fun, funny thing is, is this state is a staple. Like, baseball kids always had Big League Chew. But by that time, most of them didn't know where it came from. Right. They didn't have the mindset of linking it to chewing tobacco. Right. It was just Big League Chew. That's like when I... So, I did before and after school programs. And the, the kids played, like, you could tell this was a game that had been passed down for mm-hmm. years. They were playing this game they called Pac-Man. And I said to one of them do you know where this game comes from? And they were like, yeah, it's the game. And I'm like, yeah, like the video game. And they were like, there's a video game of this? <laughs> it's so funny. But yeah, that's kind of what happens that I think now I wouldn't have a problem giving this to a kid because you don't see people as much chewing there's tobacco. No, and, there's no connection. I mean, chewing yeah, tobacco is really not as popular as it once was. But even when it is now, it's usually like the stuff that comes in the circular cans. Right. Right. This is modeled more off of like Red Man, which was in a pouch. And you don't see a whole lot of chewing tobacco like that anymore. Which is also racist. But can you also, can you imagine if somebody today was like, hey, we're going to make a candy that looks like you're vaping, but you're eating candy. Right. (laughs) I mean. Nobody would go for it, and yet millions of parents allowed their kids to buy this. A few last fun facts. It hit retail stores in 1980, but the first batch, the first test batch, was made on Babe Ruth's birthday, February 6, 1979. Okay. And 
It is also known as the Hall of Fame bubblegum because it has the official stamp of approval from the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Nice. Which we have been to. We have been to, yeah. yeah. We don't. Li- we, don't we only live about an hour and a half from. Don't tell people where we live. <laughs> they, now they're going to try to stalk if us. If you want to try to stalk us, we're, we're in Syracuse. In some kind of hour and a half radius from Cooperstown. Um, okay, so... We always rate the snack one out of five. We rate the movie one out of ten. We're going on baseballs today, pretty obviously. Yep. So, out of five baseballs, what do you give Big League Chew? I gotta give it a five, I guess. Okay. That's very high, but I can't think of any negatives about it right now. I don't love the bubblegum flavor. If we had had strawberry or the sour apple even, mm-hmm. I think that I would have liked it more. But, um... Yeah, so I'm going to go with a four. I'm going to go okay. with a four. But also, gum's not my favorite. The interesting thing is, too, you mentioned the art on the cover. The different flavors have different ball players drawn. Yeah, it's really fun. So it's different, you know, the, they have different, like, ball players that are playing in different positions. And are they based on real people? I no, think? I think they're just, they might be, but I think they're just, car- like, caricatures. Yeah, they just added on their website, too, it says they just added some college Oh, okay. Team. So I think that's kind of neat, too. That is neat. So bring in the college ball a little bit. So. Four and a half baseballs. Four and a half baseballs out of five for Big League Chew. Okay, so let's get into Field of Dreams. We're going to do a summary and then some history and fun facts. Then okay. we'll talk about our memories. All right, then I will jump into the summary. First, I have to let everyone know out there that's listening, Megan took my gum away. <laughs> and I'm not happy about it. Well, I didn't want us to be like, the thing about Field of Dreams, that like I didn't think that would be. That makes it more authentic, Megan. No. Okay. It makes it gross. Nobody wants to hear that, especially people who have misophonia. They want to hear our chomping. So that f- for anyone that's new listening... Just how we do it is I give a quick summary right now, and then we're going to go into it a little further um, after we take a break during our full review. So, a quick summary of Field of Dreams. It follows Ray Kinsella, who is a farmer in Iowa, who hears a voice that makes him first plow over three acres of his cornfield and create a baseball field out of nowhere. Um, and then he continues to hear a voice, which then makes him travel to Boston to seek out a recluse writer from the 60s, mm-hmm. um, and then sends him to Minnesota to find a baseball player who only played one inning in the big leagues, and then returns home to find his farm on the brink of foreclosure, because they could barely make ends meet to begin with, and now he has less farmland because he built this huge baseball field with lights and everything um and during that process they realized that not only did he make a baseball field but ghosts of long past baseball players like the golden age of baseball can keep coming out of the cornfield and playing games on the baseball field which ray and his family can see but other people can't and so this is kind of the the main plot behind the movie and then that comes into him trying to figure out how to save his farm um, and then there's a connection to uh, his family as well and some of the things that happened in his past with his dad, which we'll talk about. Um, and that all comes to a resolution. And out of all of these ghost baseball players, it really focuses around Shoeless Joe Jackson, 
who was a member of the 1919 White Sox scandal, or the Black Sox, as they called them, mm-hmm. um, which we can talk about a little bit more during our full review as well. Um, and then it has a happy ending to the movie, which is kind of nice as well. So that's Field of Dreams in a very quick nutshell. Um, and then we're, I'm gonna, when we get to full review, the full recap, I'm going to break it up into kind of five sections. So with that, Megan, why don't you give us some history and fun facts? Yeah, so just I want to start before the movie and talk about the Black Sox scandal that Mm -hmm. you just kind of touched on. The Black Sox scandal was a Major League Baseball game-fixing scandal. So eight members of the Chicago White Sox in 1919 were accused of throwing the World Series against the Cincinnati Reds. Um, So basically there was money exchanged with a gambling syndicate the National Baseball Commission was dissolved. There was uh, basically, like, they restructured everything yeah. because of this scandal. They had they were acquitted in a public trial in 1921, but the judge still banned all eight men from playing professional baseball. So there's another story and movie based on this called Eight Men Out mm-hmm. that just features that scandal and what happened yeah maybe we'll do it someday i've seen it it's a very good movie. yeah it's a good movie i don't i saw it like maybe one time but i remember it being good but there were calls for them to be reinstated and possibly put into consideration for the baseball hall of fame there have been calls for pete rose kind of in a similar situation right he was a very good player who was found to be gambling and betting on games and mm. not necessarily fixing them Um, or intentionally throwing them or anything like that, but at least participating in the gambling, Mm -hmm. right? So the thing with Shoeless Joe Jackson and they talk about in the movie is that he played a really good game, and there really wasn't anything... Like, he did take the money, but there wasn't necessarily anything in the game to show that he did anything to actually throw the game. Yeah. Shoeless Joe was actually one of the people who testified in front of the grand jury during the actual 1920s um, trial. Um, and he did testify that he took $5,000, mm-hmm. um, but that he was he later said that he was kind of pressured into doing it by the other players and that he did not play differently during the series, which he actually he, he had one of the highest batting averages in history during that series. Right. Um, so some accounts, basically, they tried to make it look like some newspapers said that he, they they quoted him as saying, like, if a Cincinnati player batted a ball out to his territory, he would muff it, like, fail to catch it. But the fact is, there's no actual account that he ever said that. And he had 12 base hits, which was a series record that stood unbroken from 1919 till 1964. Yeah. So there were there was kind of a lot of question, and a lot of people... Um, still look to him like kind of a hero of the game and someone who kind of got um, a raw deal, essentially. So this movie is based on a book called Shoeless Joe. Yep. Written by W.P. Kinsella, who said that he did not put his own name in the book. Mm-hmm. It's or the movie that, um, that Ray Kinsella is named after other people. Okay. But it is also his name, so yeah. it just kind of makes me laugh. And this was his first book. It started with a 20-page short story, and then he extended it into a full-length novel. 
Um, W.P. Kinsella gave a review for one of our books for um, Dreamfield by okay. Ethan Bryant. It's one of the books that we published when we had a publishing company. So, yeah, but he's still around. He took the book's original title was The, the Dreamfield. Which then our author used as the title for his book. Mm-hmm. He renamed it Shoeless Joe, probably because people would recognize that name a little bit right. more and understand who it was based on. And then they used the title to do Field of Dreams. So in the movie, they have a fictional author, mm-hmm. right? That they that that Ray kind of kidnaps. Um, in the book, it was J.D. Salinger, right, who wrote Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> and then the yep. producers and, and was also notoriously recluse. Yes, in his later years. And also, though, the 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 producers of the film worried that they would be sued. <laughs> Understandable. But then also, but the 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 writers eventually played by James Earl Jones, who wouldn't have been able to play J.D. Salinger, and he's great in that part. So I'm kind of glad that it didn't. Yes. Go that way. So he and his wife, uh, W.P. Kinsella and his wife, were part of the audience for the PTA scene. And he says, quote, we were trapped there for a full day of sweltering remakes and we never appeared in the final cut. (laughs) And he also said that his daughter had, quote, a little romance with Ray Liotta and enjoyed the filming process much more than they did. I don't, I have not been able to find anything about this. He okay. was not married yet at the time, mm-hmm. Ray Liotta. From, I don't know if if they were kind of same age and they actually like went on a couple dates or she if she was. She a little crush on him. That's my guess. Yeah. That she was probably like eight or nine and just was like, oh, he has pretty eyes. Yeah. You know. Um, but you know who did appear as extras in Boston? In the 80s. I do, but I want to let you say Were Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. And they are in the Fenway Park scene. Um, So eventually Ben Affleck goes to also star in the director's movie The Sum of All Fears. And he walked up and said, nice working with you again. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is kind of funny. Um, But to me that just kind of shows like the hustle. You know right, what I right. mean? Like, these two really, they wanted to write a movie, be in movies. They they were going to be in any scenes that they could be in for any movie in Boston. Yeah, this was a number of years before Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. There's also a deleted scene where Ray gets his hearing checked because he's hearing the voices. Oh, okay. That makes I'm sense. I'm guessing it comes after he's in the feed and seed. Probably, with yeah. all. I don't want to jump ahead too much. There's a scene with where Ray is in a feed and seed like agricultural store, and all the other farmers are staring at him because he admits to hearing these voices. So apparently, he goes and gets his hearing checked. Moonlight Graham is the man they get from Minnesota, and he is based on a real person. Graham's lone major league game took place in actually 1905. So they aged they aged it up a little bit to 1922, but they actually they read his um, part of his obituary, and it was from the real Moonlight Graham's obituary. Okay. And so here's what it has to say: There were time he became a doctor, and the obituary said there were times when children who could not afford glasses 
or milk or clothing, yet no child was ever denied these essentials because in the background there was always Dr. Graham. Without fanfare or publicity, the glasses or milk or the tickets to the ball game found, found their way into the child's pocket. Gotcha, yeah. And they read so, that from one of the I'm not gonna paper. Cry. Yep. I'm not crying. You're crying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's so sweet. Burt Lancaster played Moonlight Graham, and it was his last film. He retired from acting. He had a few little TV things. And then he retired from acting and passed away in 94. But it was Gabby Hoffman's first film. And she plays Ray's daughter, Karen. Yep. Not that kind of a Karen. No. <laughs> it's Karen with an I also. Fields of Dreams, they filmed it based on the height of the corn. <laughs> so they had to wait. The corn had to be Kevin Costner's height or taller when the voice first spoke to him. And he's six foot one. Yes. <laughs> so they had to wait and they had to, um, they dammed up a nearby creek to make sure that the corn had enough water. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it kind of annoyed other people that they had to go around this corn. Especially because apparently the studios really did not think that this was going to be a commercially viable film. Well, it probably irritated the other farmers too because there was a drought at the time. And the corn wasn't going to be tall enough, and they had the studio pay $25,000 to ship water in. Yeah. To put on the corn to make it grow. And then because of the drought, they still, when you know when they have the baseball field shots? Mm-hmm. The crew had to paint the field green yeah, because was, the grass was dead. I was going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I And you can kind of, what's interesting is that, when you watch the film, it does look a little bit otherworldly and a little bit dreamlike. And I think that's because it's painted. Because yeah. it's just a little bit more saturated. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's a good fact. I also forgot to say that um, the field still attracts approximately 100,000 visitors every year. And they did have a White Sox-Yankees game. They were going to play one regular season game. I don't know if on the site, but at least near it to for all the uh-huh. visitors and stuff. It was scheduled for August 13th, 2020. Uh. <laughs> so it got delayed, but they eventually did play it. And I think that that is, I think that that's great. And it just shows kind of how this movie has endured and how people, you know, still love it and still feel about it. Oh, also, before I forget, but one of the other facts is that I recognized the musical style of the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. While we were watching it, I looked it up, and yes, indeed, the composer is James James Homer, who also did Glory. Okay, which we did did a few months ago. Yes, and and he, in addition to Glory, he did Titanic, Braveheart, Avatar. He's done over 165 things, but I just thought it was so interesting because... um, it, it it's like he has a style yeah. and once you see that or hear that style you can kind of like recognize the signature beats and stuff oh and lastly kevin costner almost didn't do the movie because he had just done another baseball movie bull bull durham bull durham yep and after this didn't he do another baseball movie after later this? on he was a little bit older it was about 15 20 years later he did uh for love of the game yeah he played an aged baseball player Yes. A major league ball player, yep. So whenever I think of baseball, I think of Kevin Costner, <laughs> probably because of these three films. So 
I think because Ray Liotta passed away not long ago. Yeah. Then we should end our little facts section with a few facts about Ray Liotta. Okay, go to the it. Film. So the first one was, of course, Ray Liotta plays Shoeless Joe Jackson. Mm-hmm. His ghost, I guess, but Shoeless yeah. Joe Jackson. And they almost were uncertain about casting because they wanted Shoeless Joe Jackson to be almost like a surrogate father figure to Ray. Mm-hmm. Because of the issues with his dad and things like that. And Ray Liotta and Kevin Costner are the same age. They're a month apart. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense, though, when you watch how he plays it, which we'll get yeah. into later. But the, the director and the casting chose Ray Liotta because they said even though he's the same age, that Ray, Ray Liotta had a sense of danger mm. that that character needed to have. Because mm-hmm. of the scandal, because of everything behind it. Right. Which ended up playing to his advantage because the next year he was in Goodfellas. Right. Which launched him, and as we know, Ray Liotta had a long career of playing kind of like mob, kind of like, you know, dangerous men. Yeah. Which is crazy to me because I feel like he was typecast, and watching this movie, you can tell the range he has. And then the other one, the last one we'll do, it's, this is a sad one, is Ray Liotta never actually saw Field of Dreams. What? He never watched the movie. He That's had nothing crazy. against the movie. He actually enjoyed the filming and he liked it. Mm-hmm. But during the filming and production of Field of Dreams, his mother was very ill. Mm. And she passed away right after. And he said that he never watched the movie because he was afraid it would take him back to that time. And it yeah. was sad. That's too bad. So he never watched the movie. Because he didn't want to be reminded of his mom passing away. That's so sad. <laughs> Um, and now he's gone. And now he's gone, but rest in peace. He was an amazing actor and, from all accounts, a really nice person as well. So, all right. Well, with that sad, sad note, um, we're going to throw it over to our friends at S1E1 <laughs> to tell you a little bit about their show. Um we're not getting paid for any of the shows that we're sharing with you. These are just other independent podcasts that um, we enjoy and we think our listeners might enjoy as well. Nobody so. sets up a happy break like Steve. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> here you go, everybody. Hey, everyone. Nick here from the S1E1 podcast. Each week, we pick a different sitcom, watch just the first televised episode, and ignoring anything we may know about the future run of that series, decide if it's a show that we want to greenlight or cancel. We very seriously dissect TV shows for no reason at all. I gotta pee. Fucking old timey. Ah, I got a Frankenstein at my show. That's what I You, you should about? know because right now you're dressed like a London DJ. <laughs> moving forward unless there's anything else depressing about my life you want to bring up that's impressive to find that many bad shows who's boner i don't even know what a banksy is catch us each week wherever you listen to podcasts and visit us at s1e1pod.com for links to everywhere you can find us all right everybody we're back my name is megan and i'm steve so steve I'm going to talk about my memory first real quick, okay. and then we'll hear about yours. All right. Um, so my memories of this movie um, are kind of interesting. My family, in the summer that I was in fifth grade, would have been, I think, 91. And my cousin was getting married in California. 
and my parents are both teachers and a lot of times they had like worked during the summer mm -hmm. but this year they didn't they say i think probably because we got to save the date like probably two years in advance or yep. whatever so they saved up a lot of money we got a little pop-up camper and we took a trip from new york to california and back and we camped at different campgrounds all the way out there and all the way back and then we did like a few different things like we saw the st louis arch the grand canyon and then we went to like the petrified forest and like the curviest road in the world mm -hmm. in san francisco like all of that kind of stuff um and it was an amazing trip but one of the things that i remember is that we had this little black and white tv that we bought and we hooked it up to the cigarette lighter mm -hmm. in the car. And this was before cars had like, or vans had like, you know, TVs and VCRs. So we got a, a portable VCR and a portable TV, hooked them up to the cigarette lighter. And we were in this minivan. And my mom put the cooler in the middle of her chair and my dad's seat in the front and put the TV on the cooler and strapped it down with bungee cords. <laughs> and then... What we did was we took a bunch of VHS tapes with us mm -hmm. and then we bought tapes at like um, blockbusters and stuff for like, you know, seven ninety nine, nine along the way so that we always had new movies. So one of our first stops, we see this movie. Tim is playing Little League. So he's like, that's cool. I want to watch that movie. And my parents are like, well, all right. Like, there's nothing bad in it. It's mm -hmm. not really a kid's movie, but that's fine. We became, like, obsessed with this movie. And we had to have watched it, like, 20 times on this trip. <laughs> and I said to Steve, as we're watching it this time, the movie comes up and I go, oh. And he goes, what? And I go, I, I don't know that I've ever seen this in color. Because the, 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 the TV that we had was cheap, so it was just black and white TV. Yeah. And I may have watched it one or two other times after that trip, but we watched it so many times that I kind of at that point had it like memorized. Okay. So I just always rem I just always associate that movie with um, being in like a campground in Wyoming. <laughs> and also, fun fact about the trip: I got chickenpox second day. Tim had just had chickenpox. He got over it. My parents didn't think I was going to get it. I broke out the second day of our trip. So we have a little minivan pulling a trailer. It keeps getting overheated. So we can't have the air conditioning on. We're half like, because then the car would overheat more. I have calamine lotion that I'm dabbing onto my chicken pox. I'm itching like crazy. And at least we have Field of Dreams to watch on the TV. Your parents have created... Possibly the prototype for the in minivan child <laughs> v movie. Yes, exactly. Um, it's like one of those. It's like a vacation movie, yeah. right? Um, but we also we watched this. Also, um, there was a Flintstones themed campground right outside the Grand Canyon, and we stayed there. But we watched this movie there. We watched it in Wyoming. We watched it in St. Louis. Like we watched it like everywhere. And um, yeah, it's just a it's just a great memory because both my brother and I loved it, and my parents loved it too. And we'll talk about why I think a little bit later. Okay. When we get into it. So, do you have memories specifically of this movie? And it played baseball for a long time. Well, this movie came out in '89, which was my first 
my first summer or my first summer and then year living in New York if okay. I moved from Texas. And so I hadn't played a lot of sports in Texas and so this is when I started playing baseball. Mm. Was this year. So I started, you know, I was in my first re- really one of my first baseball leagues um and played little league. And so I remember watching the movie. I mean, I didn't make a huge connection because it's like old time baseball a little bit, right? Right. And I didn't at the time. I didn't know. Now I do, but I didn't know as much about history of baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did. I remember liking it, right? I remember it being kind of a cool film. It wasn't something I watched over and over and over again. I think throughout my life, I've seen it probably a dozen times because sometimes it would be on TV, right. things like that, right? But um, yeah, I mean, my brothers and I watched it, and we were all ba- we all played baseball, so you know there was a bit of a connection there. It's it's not like Major League or Bull Durham where they're playing like current baseball, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's it's really more for people who it's nostalgia. It's a nostalgia for people who love the history of the game, yeah. which now as an adult, knowing that I really have an appreciation for. Um, but it's it's it was a neat movie. It's a travel movie a little bit, and it's got ghosts. It's a fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it is. It's it, it was a neat movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's got time travel. It's got mystery. It's got ghosts. Yeah. It's got. It's got a lot in it. Family, love, and values, and yeah, yeah all of that. Um. All right. So let's get into our full review and recap. All right. So as I mentioned before, I kind of broke this into five little acts, right? Okay. Or five stages to make it easier for us to talk about. Nice. So the first one I'll, I'll give a little recap of. Um, we meet Ray Kinsella, who's played by... Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner, right? Um, who's... Uh, a graduate of the University of California at Berkeley, which, mm-hmm. as everyone knows, is a connection to kind of the 60s, right? And sort of the hippie movement was a lot out in California. Yeah. And him and his wife kind of grew up in that that era. Right. His um, wife's played by Amy Madigan. Yeah, they're very anti-establishment. Mm-hmm. Right? And so now they've had a baby and they've moved out to Iowa and bought a farm. Right. Um, and so that's where we kind of pick up with them as they've transplanted to Iowa um, with his wife and his daughter, Karen. Um, and he starts to hear a voice in the cornfield. Right? Um, the voice tells him plainly, if you build it, he will come. A few days later, he hears the voice again, and two pictures flash before his eyes. Mm-hmm. One picture is of Ray Liotta as Shoeless Joe Jackson, as we mentioned, of the 1919 White Sox. And then the other picture that flashes is of a baseball field in his cornfield with night, you know, lighting and everything like that um, put up, which is interesting because the time that Shoeless Joe played, they didn't have lights. You didn't play it right. right. Yeah, <laughs> which they talk about later. So that's our first kind of piece, That's right? the first piece, That's yeah. like the inciting incident. Okay, let's get into this. I don't understand why I was obsessed with this movie in like fifth and then sixth grade because... This movie is such a baby boomer movie. (laughs) Like, everything... The whole point of the movie, which is established in this first bit, Mm -hmm. the entire point of the movie is how can you be... uh, How can you be an adult and have responsibilities and a family in the 1980s while still trying to hold on to your hippie values from yes. the 1960s and not change who you were and then also how can you reconcile understanding better your parents now that you're a parent 
mm-hmm. and the values that they held for the greatest generation, right? Yes. Gabby Hoffman is like the Gen Xer in this movie, and she's like five. Yeah. Right? So, and she might not even be, now that I'm thinking of it, she's probably not. She's probably a millennial or an exadial or whatever they call mm-hmm. it. But my point is that, yeah, it's really a baby boomer movie. And I like how they established that right from the beginning of him talking about how he left New York to go to California, the mm-hmm. furthest place he could go to get away from his dad, and then how he kind of never reconciled with his dad and he never went back home until it was, like, too late. Right, and it also mentions, you know, it's interesting because it, it's it's a setup for the fact that Ray is coming to, to terms with the fact that he's not the same person as he was growing up. Yeah. He's reached a different phase in life. And the thing is, is he mentions in this movie that really the greatest sin that he held against his father was growing old. Yeah. His father was in his 40s when he was born, so he was already kind of an older man. Yeah. And he just felt that he was always, like, you know, he didn't want to, he wasn't young and full of energy and things like that. Um, he was working, he was probably tired when he got home because he's older already, right? By the time Ray goes to college, his dad's probably 60, at least, right? Yeah. So, you know, um, he never knew him as a young man, basically. Yeah, and the his wife, Amy Madigan, um, I really like that she feels kind of, like, quirky and in that same position. Like, she was, like, a fighter in the 1960s. They did protesting at Berkeley, and now she goes to PTA meetings. Yeah. And like, but I kind of liked that they didn't, like, a lot of times, they didn't cast somebody super young for his wife. Right. Mm-hmm. And they also, so their relationship feels real to me. And also their house is very messy. <laughs> like yes. It looks like really lived in. And I love that. And my, my favorite part of this, besides like the really awesome vision that he has of what the field could be and all of that mm-hmm. is when he goes into the feed and seed. And all the old farmers are there, and they're like baby boomers or possibly silent generation, yeah. which is like the time before that. And he goes, he's like, um, say, Joe, any old farmers kind of, you know, go nuts and start hearing things out of the cornfields? And they're like, who's hearing things out in the cornfield? And Joe's like, Ray, Ray's hearing things out in the corn. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm not saying I hear things in the corn. I'm just asking, like, if that happens. Right, right. And he looks around, and he is the youngest person in this store by at least 30 years. Yeah, and they're all going, oh, yeah, Ray's here. And he's like, no, no. And in the <laughs> background on the radio is playing Patsy Cline's Crazy. Yes! Which so was cute. a phenomenal detail. And then when he's at home, and he thinks that he's been hearing stuff, and he walks in, and his daughter's having breakfast, and she's watching Harvey. Right. <laughs> which is about... A man who sees... Who sees a puka a, rabbit? Sees a puka rabbit, yes. And he turns it off, and he's like, "That's not good entertainment. We're not watching that today." Oh my gosh, it was so funny to me. There, like, I remember this movie as being kind of more dramatic, and I forgot that there it is. But there mm-hmm. are these little like humorous touches along the way. So we come to to act two. So the second piece, Ray hearing the voice and seeing these visions. Finally, he first hears the voice a little bit, and then he finally sees the visions at night. So he wakes his wife Annie up in the middle of the night. He's puzzled by the voice. Um, he mentions his dad again, but he mentions it because his his he he remarks that his dad lacked spontaneity. 
Mm. And so it's like he doesn't want to be like his dad. So maybe he'll just build this field because his dad was so like older and didn't do anything spontaneous, right? So it's almost like that kind of drives him. Yeah. Um, he doesn't want to follow in his father's footsteps. He feels strongly that he must follow the vision he experienced in the cornfield. Um, his wife Annie is kind of nervous. She <laughs> or, also obviously. Asked, she also asks him if it was an acid flashback. Yeah, and he's like, "I never did it acid," and she's like, "Maybe you will." And it's like a four fast forward. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so basically, she reluctantly kind of just gives in and lets him do what he wants. So he ends up destroying a couple acres of of the cornfield and making like this pristine baseball field. Um, which all the locals are like, what the hell is he doing? Like, it shows farmers, like, standing at the fence watching him, like, what in the world is possessed this guy? Yeah, and I have to say, living in a community somewhat, now they're a little bit further away from their neighbors, but if we did something like that, we would have a similar reaction. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> our, neighbors, our neighbors are farmers, and they would be like, what in the heck are well, those We people? would, too. We may not stop, but we drive by every day and be I like, what are they like... doing? Why are they building that? I would take pictures with my phone and send them to you. <laughs> be like, here's here's crazy Pete down the road. This is what he's doing this week, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, and I what was surprising to me about this is that, part, you know, we broke it up into five, but one and two are really only... The first, like, 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah. I just remembered the field building. I don't know. That was, like, a prominent thing in my mind. And they do it in a montage that goes by very quickly. They do. Yeah, I remember the voice being a big thing. Right. Because culturally it was, although it was always misquoted. Everyone always says, if you build it, they will come. And it's, he will come. Yeah, who misquotes that? Everyone misquotes no. it. Yes, it's what? one. Of, it's actually one of the, it was listed as one of the most misquoted movie lines ever. That's interesting yeah. to me. Um, because it's, yeah. So, what my other, my other takeaway from this is that I never, it is like, this is a movie that kind of, it's not about God, but it's about faith. Yep. Right? And so the voice in the background, there's a story from the Bible where Samuel is called and he thinks it's Elijah calling him, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, what do you need me for? He keeps going to Elijah. And Elijah just says, it's not me. So next time you hear that, say, here I am, Lord. And that is kind of what happens here, that it's that repetition of him being called and then finally realizing what he's supposed to do based on that call. Right. And then building the field is a lot like Noah building the ark. Yep. That he's been told to build something that everybody else thinks he's crazy to do. Mm -hmm. And despite them thinking he's crazy, he does it anyway. Yeah. Right? Um, but yeah, basically then all their savings is in the field and now it... It makes it hard to keep up the farm. Especially with less corn. Yeah. So. Which, by the way, though, I want to say, this was my one plot hole. He has 193 acres of corn. Yeah. He only, to make the field, he plowed maybe three to five said acres. three, yeah, yeah. In the movie. So you still have 190 acres of corn. That's still a lot of corn. Yeah. So I don't know But, I mean, that. it still seems, I mean, if I came to you and was like, I'm going to make a baseball field in our backyard with lights and bleachers. Are you going to charge for tickets? That's my question. Well, it would be but a, our yard a is tough, only... It would be a tough sell. But Steve, our yard is like seven. Yeah. Right? So if you're going to take three of the seven, then yeah, that's a big... That's a big 
takeaway, but, but you, you have a hundred and ninety. Would you agree or would you not agree? No, I don't want lights on. It's gonna be bright. Sorry, like Lucy, I tried. <laughs> no, we have gorgeous fireflies in our backyard at night. And big, huge lights. I also know that our neighbors would not appreciate huge stadium lighting yeah. in our backyard. So these, but if you want to make a baseball field, we probably have room for that. So these are the first two kind of sections that lead up to section three, which is after the field's completed, basically goes like almost a year. It shows winter comes, nothing's happening. And then one day, Annie and Ray are fighting about finances and karen goes daddy and he goes not right now and she goes daddy and he's like stop we're talking and finally she goes there's a man out in your in the baseball field and he looks out and there's a man dressed as a 19 teens 1920s baseball player um and it's we find out it's shoeless joe jackson so him and the other members of the white Sox start showing up out of the cornfield and playing um, baseball. And Ray, they ask Ray. Ray's like, I made this for you, I guess. So, yeah, you can play whatever you want. So they the, start playing. The, the first time he goes out to play with Shoeless Joe, he throws the ball up in the air and he whiffs it. Yeah. And Shoeless Joe's like, oh, I thought we were playing baseball. Come on, Ray. Yeah. Get your act together. Which I thought was kind of funny. And Ray Liotta has this amazing presence in this film. And he's, he has this speech about how when he was thrown out of baseball, it was like his legs being amputated. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that you hear about guys scratching their itchy legs that have just been dust for years, he, he wakes up with this yearning yeah. to play baseball. Um, there's no humor in him, at least in this first scene. And right. I think that was, like you said, because he's trying to be yeah. like a father figure. What I like also about it is it never, we mentioned a little bit about this, the White Sox scandal, things like that. It never, he never pleads his innocence. No. He never mentions whether he did it or not, because there's some people that are like, oh, he never really had anything. But historically, that's not true. He actually did say he took money, right? He yeah. just said that he didn't. He basically said he, he didn't act to throw the game. Right. But um, he never mentions that. He just mentions the the sorrow of being thrown out of baseball, right? But there is a, a great line, and it is kind of humorous, that he has when they start to play. When Ray and him, you know, first Ray hits a few out to him and he fields them. Mm-hmm. And then he says to Ray, can you pitch? And Ray goes, yeah, I could pitch. And he grabs a baseball bat because he's, he's a very well-known hitter, right? Mm-hmm. And Ray goes, Ray gets on the pitcher's mound and he gets, he gets ready to throw the first one. He goes, wait a second, don't we need a catcher? And Ray Liotta says, not if you get it over the plate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, is a baseball player is a hilarious. But again, he says it with such gravitas and like there's just no, he's like... Not if you get over the plate yeah. and he spits his chew. Like there's yeah. not any there's not any jokes there. Um and then he says, Is this heaven? And Ray goes, uh, no, it's Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> and he just looks around like, huh. Yeah. But each time I think it's interesting the way that they use Karen as the younger innocent. She's the one who sees Shoeless Joe first. Mm-hmm. She sees that the rest of the players come out first, um, and there's another part we'll talk about later. Yeah, I thought that I thought that that was kind of interesting. Then we have Timothy Busfield, who plays the brother-in-law. Yep. yep. So he's Annie's brother. Yep. And he's with a number of financers. Fi- well, first we just financers. see him, and he's trying. He's telling them basically, you can't keep doing it this way. Yeah. Right. And it's during this section 
that we see him once or we see him once I think talking to them about how they need to basically sell the farm or they they don't have enough money to keep going they're not making it and they're kind of Ray just kind of doesn't pay attention to him yeah so you're right he's just there by himself and he's telling him this stuff and this it was interesting I didn't put this in the fun facts because I wanted to keep it but the the author of the the book W.P. Kinsella he gave the movie a four out of five <laughs> and he had two reasons and the one was that Karen didn't look enough like her parents but Gabby Hoffman's a really good actress. Right. So I think we can forgive that. And then he said also that Timothy Busfield wasn't villainous enough. But I kind of liked that he's not completely a villain. So he can't see the baseball players. In right. fact, he walks right through while they're trying to pitch a yeah. game. But what I liked about that is I feel like he played the role in a very realistic way. And that is if your sister was married to someone who was possibly mentally ill Mm -hmm. and hearing voices and doing things like plowing half their field to to build a baseball diamond, that you would be concerned for her. And he says, they're going to foreclose on your farm. I'm working with this financial group. Let us buy it. And at least you get money and you guys can go get another house. He can start again. He can get a different job. So I feel like... In some ways, he's supposed to be a person maybe who was a hippie or who who kind of missed the hippie movement Mm. and is fully establishment. And that's why he can't see that, you know, he can't see the dream. Right. But his motivation isn't horrible. So I don't know. Do you what did you think of that? His piece, his piece, you know, we get more into him a little bit later. Yeah. But yeah, this first part, he just seems kind of annoying and you could tell he's sort of an antagonist. But I didn't think he needed to be villainous necessarily. I think the circumstances are villainous, right? That's true. We know that they're good, they could lose their house. That's a natural thing. It's not like someone has to be actively taking it. The fact that he built a field and they're not making enough corn now is kind of his own fault, right? And so that's just the circumstances around it. And I think that's part of this, right? We also have the mousy sister-in-law and the angry mother-in-law right who think they're making fun of them because they go you can't see the the game being played yeah and they're like no and so they ask the little girl and karen's like yeah there's a ball game right there and they're like this is not funny to make fun of people and to laugh at people at their expense <laughs> and they stomp off yeah. so ray things seem to be going well there's ghost players playing baseball games on the field but ray hears the voice again mm. and it tells him to ease his pain yes and through uh through Ray and Annie going to a PTA meeting where they're talking about books being banned and this Terrence Mann person comes up, they realize that that's, Ray's like, that's who I'm supposed to go see. So he, again, leaves Annie with the kid and with the failing farm. She's not a real fan of, but she's like, okay, go ahead. And he takes takes their old VW van, which is a classic 60s callback, um, and drives it all the way out to Boston to track down this recluse author who doesn't want to be seen. Right. Terrence Mann. Terrence Mann, played by James Earl Jones, um, and says, I have to bring you to a baseball game. Well, I don't really say take you to a baseball game. He really kidnaps him almost. Right, he almost forces him to go to a yeah, game with him. Yeah, he pretends his finger is a gun. Right, which, until Terrence Mann grabs a baseball bat and says, well, come on, shoot me then. Yeah. Um, but basically, he goes with him in this game, and it's during the game that he sees 
another, he sees basically Archie um, Moonlight Graham's statistics on the board um, and hears the voice again say, go the distance. And he says, okay, well, I guess we can leave then. Like, that's all I had to do. Until he finds that Terrence Mann actually heard and saw it as well. So now Terrence Mann's all in, and they decide to travel out to Chisholm, Minnesota, and find Moonlight Graham. Um, and so they travel out there and find that Moonlight Graham has died. Mm-hmm. And they are, get kind of sad about it, but they go back to the hotel, and as Ray's walking, he sees an old man that looks like Moonlight, and he basically talks to Moonlight Graham's ghost as a doctor. And finds out that one of his biggest regrets was the fact that he only played baseball for one inning in the major leagues. Um, and he never got to hit. And so he says, well, you should come with me and we can let you. And he says, no, I've got too much to do here. I have my wife's waiting for me. And it's actually time travel because he doesn't actually, he kind of sees his ghost, but everything's the 70s around him all of a sudden. Yeah, it's not his ghost. He, he travels, travels back, back in time, time, which is even kind of weirder. Yeah. Um, and then... Uh, that's kind of where that section ends, as he leaves and in in moonlight as the older Dr. Graham goes home. Right. So, Steve just said this is kind of like the meat of the movie, right? Mm -hmm. The first thing I want to say, I liked that, um, again, there's a lot of, like, fantasy stuff kind of built in, like, at first, Annie doesn't support his dream to go out to Boston, Mm -hmm. um, but then she realizes that she dreamt of him in Fenway Park, and they had the same dream. Yes. And then she's like, well, you need to go! Yeah. (laughs) Like that. Um, but even before that, let's talk about the PTA meeting. (laughs) I love the scene of the PTA meeting so much as a kid, and I think it's because, as I, I, part of this is that like uh, there are personality traits I thought I had that are just actually traits of Gen X, mm-hmm. and one of them is like not trusting and any like authority or establishment, and and out of that for Megan at least comes a hate of meetings. And in every meeting, there is somebody who stands up and doesn't know what they're talking about. Right. And my greatest desire is to just tell that person off. And that's what Annie does in this scene. Yes. So this woman wants to ban books that are subversive. Right. And she's like, and Terrence, man, this is pornography. And the poor, the poor teachers who are on this board are like, actually, it's not. It, like, won a Pulitzer Prize. The Supreme Court does not find yeah. this to be pornography at all. It's funny that this, as they mentioned, this was actually based off J.D. Salinger. Yes. In Catch on the Rye. But the thought, the feeling I always got watching this was that it was based off of Jack Kerouac on the road, which was also a big 60s book. Yeah, but Catcher on the Rye was also banned in yeah. a lot of schools. So I can kind of, either one of them, yeah. I think. There are a number of books like that. Um... It, we haven't seen Footloose, but they have a big thing in Footloose where the people want to ban um, Slaughterhouse-Five. Mm. And he's like, it's a classic. Right. And she's like, maybe in your town, not in this town. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, but Annie stands up and she's like, Beulah, you Nazi cow. <laughs> and then she gives this speech and she's like, 
Who's here for book burning like the Nazis, like Beulah over there? Who's here for spinning on the Bill of Rights? Who's here for throwing out the U.S. Constitution? And she gets, like, all riled up, and you can, again... This theme of, like, these are people who, like, in the 60s made change and now they have a mortgage and a kid and they're going to PTA meetings, but they still want to do something. And mm-hmm. they both have that yearning inside of them. And she's, like, coming out of the meeting and she's like, I told her I was going to take her outside. Come on, let's step outside, you Nazi cow. <laughs> like, you know, she's all fired up. And um, and it just, like, I just love it. I just love it. A line it's- I love from the PTA meeting is she says maybe you'd know that if you grew up in the 60s and Beulah says I I did live in the 60s and she goes no I think you had two 50s and moved straight into the 80s yes exactly and um I what I think is interesting is that so much of this movie is based on Kevin Costner and his dream and what he wants and it kind of puts his family in jeopardy but you can really see in that scene that this is what she wants too it's just that for her, it's coming out in a little bit of a different way, mm-hmm. right? But she still has, like, that same impulse, and she still, in some ways, is the same person she was 20 years ago. Yeah. So it's kind of neat to me. Then we have James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones as Terrence Mann is phenomenal. He's amazing. What I love about it is that, you know, he doesn't want... He's basically drawn back into the from the world yeah he's he's just lives in his apartment he doesn't let anybody know who he is right because he was this famous author and you're like okay maybe he's just moved on and then when he realizes that ray is from the 60s and was like someone who read his he's like oh one of them no back 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 he's like you would think that he has this that he would have this huge appreciation for the people who read his book and made him famous but it's like no, he like actually hates. He's like, you guys need to move on. Like you're stuck back in a, in an era that I'm not anymore. Yeah, yeah. When they go to Fenway Park, Ray says to Terrence, "What do you want?" And Terrence says, "I just want them to stop asking me to be a leader. I want them to think for themselves, and I just want some damn privacy." And Ray goes, "No, but but what do you want?" And he, and he points. points the concession stand. Yes. <laughs> like, oh, maybe a hot dog. Yeah. Um, what I love is that James Earl Jones is more known for his dramatic roles mm-hmm. and also being the voice of Darth Vader. Right. But here, he has this great wit about him and his comic timing is perfect. And sometimes he's kind of doing the jokes, but mostly he's the straight man reacting to what Ray is doing and saying. Right. And it's just so funny in this really, like, gentle type of comedy. I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. And it, again, it shows his range as well. When we get to the part about Archibald... Um, there, again, there's this mystic stuff going on, right? There's like, the ghosts are there, but also they're sharing the same dreams. Also, now he and Terrence are having the same vision. Then he time travels, which is very clear because there are posters of Richard Nixon, like, four mm. more years. So you kind of get a sense of... The Godfather of, is the playing. Godfather is playing, yeah, exactly. So he's in 1972. And I, oh, I forgot, before I get to that, though, I forgot to say... The research that they do for both Terrence and Moonlight Graham. Yes. I love it. Because this is pre-internet research. And yes. they, with Terrence Mann, he goes and he's looking at microfiche. 
He's doing, he's looking at papers, interviews that he gave, like he's going into archives, right? With Moonlight Graham, they do kind of a similar thing, but they're interviewing people. Yeah, and they go to the newspaper first, and that's how they find out that he passed away. And then James Earl Jones is a writer, you know, Mm -hmm. Terrence Mann is a writer. He goes to like the bar and starts asking people and like jotting, like hearing stories basically. And, And kind of coming through with like an idea for both of these men of what their lives were like through actual research, which... So many writers and journalists don't do today, and it made me nostalgic for that. (laughs) But here's what he says to Moonlight Graham. You don't realize life as it happens. Back then I thought there will be other days. I didn't know there was only going to be that one day. Yeah. He had one no-hit inning. And again, through this whole movie, the same thing as the issues with Ray and his father, there's this sense of regret for a past that you didn't really realize would be gone. And I think we're, you know, I asked my parents when I was this age, there were all these 50s cafes near us, like Mm -hmm. 50s themed cafes that popped up around the time Back to the Future was popular. And I said, when I'm older, will there be like 80 stuff? Like the way there's 50 stuff? And my parents were like, no. (laughs) And now Stranger Things is one of the top. Right. Right. Like there is, and we have this podcast. Yeah, there's a nostalgia now. There's a nostalgia now. And I think that you're right. You you don't know as a kid the last time that you're going to be on the playground. Yeah. You don't know the last time that your mom's going to call you in for dinner when you're playing outside. Um, you don't know the last time that you're going to have a baseball game or play catch with your dad, right? Yeah. And it's just so, it's such a poignant movie because there are these nuggets of wisdom through the whole thing. Yeah, Burt Lancaster plays a phenomenal role as a, a country doctor that's just, you know, a small town doctor. Yeah. Who has class and gravitas and also he does a great job at portraying like that sense of regret. Yeah. And so, yeah, only playing baseball for five minutes in the major leagues wasn't a tragedy. If I'd only been a doctor for five minutes, that would have been a tragedy. And and Terrence Mann says, you know, Ray, if he had gotten a hit, he might have stayed in baseball. Yeah. Think of all the people he helped by not staying in baseball. Yeah. But, you know, Ray is like, yeah, but the passion and the dream... Well, but you can have two passions and two dreams. Right. And you don't necessarily have to give up all of your dreams to become, like, a boring adult. Right. I think that that's, that's part of it. I also love, we forgot to mention, James Earl Jones, Terrence Mann's book is called The Boat Rocker. Yes. <laughs> but, I just think it's funny. But, yeah, so, man, he grew up to be, you know... Um, Doc Graham, and he he helped a lot of people, and he had a nice life, and he had such a nice wife. I know. He bought her blue hats. Yeah. And the shopkeepers knew it, and they would buy blue hats and put them up in their shelves on display, so he'd walk by and buy them. So those thoughts kind of bring us into our next section. Right. So the fourth section starts off, they head home. Mm -hmm. Um, Terrence Mann and Ray in the van. During the drive, Ray mentions to Terrence Mann that Part of his regret was that he had had this falling out with his dad, and the last thing he'd said to his dad before he left home for college was that he couldn't, you know, that he couldn't um, respect a man whose hero was a criminal, meaning Shoeless Joe, right? And he said, you know, and, you know, he wanted to play catch with me, and I refused. 
because I was so sick of baseball. Because all he talked about was baseball. Mm-hmm. You know, he goes, imagine a kid refusing to play catch with his dad. Right. You know, and so he kind of always regretted that. Um, and he never got a chance to go back home before his dad died. And his dad, you know, he talk, it talks about the fact that his dad had been a baseball player in his youth. He played kind of minor league ball and then ended up, you know, going into work and, you know, ended up working and raising a family and everything like that. So he never got to play Major League Baseball or anything either, but he was always a big fan. And he tried to get Ray into it, and he just kind of rebelled against it. Partially because of Terrence Mann's book. Right. And Terrence Mann goes, stop trying to blame me for that. Yeah. Exactly. And then they pick up a hitchhiker. Yeah, and so it's after this revelation that the next morning as they're driving, you know, out of Minnesota, there's a young kid hitchhiking, like, you know, probably late late teens, early 20s, um, and they pick him up, and he says, how far are you going? And they said, Iowa. And he's like, okay, I'll go with you. Gets in, and as they start pulling away, he goes, oh, you know, I'm Ray, this is Terrence. And he goes, hey, I'm Archie, I'm Archie Graham. Yeah. And so apparently they've now picked up the ghost of the young Archie Graham. Yes. And they bring him back to Iowa. Um, and as they return back to Iowa, there's now a lot more ghosts playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Shoeless Joe says, yeah, you know, there's a lot of guys where we're from and they all wanted to come play. He's like, we invited some of the other guys. He said, you know, I hope you don't mind. We wanted enough to play an actual game instead of just practice. And Ray's like, yeah, no problem. He's like, they're all like, they're chomping at the bit to come play here. He's like, it's a big thing. He's like, except he goes, even, he goes, even Ty Cobb wanted to play, but we told him to screw himself because none of us liked that son of a bitch when he was alive. <laughs> yeah. He goes, <laughs> We told him to stick it. (laughs) And this is the first time we see Shula's Joe kind of like laughing. Yeah. And I feel like now, well, first of all, because his role as Ray's mentor is kind of like, kind of done at that point in some ways. But also you're seeing like his joy come back, Mm -hmm. right? He's not like the very kind of dour faced person he was the beginning. So I thought that was kind of fun. Yeah. There. And so, um... And Shoeless Joe kind of welcomes Archie, and he's like, come on, rookie. He's like, get in there. Let's play. And so Archie gets to go in and play, actually, with the team, and he, he gets a hit, and he's, he's playing in the field, things like that. Um, and so we ne- we next see Terrence, man, who can see everyone, and Annie and Karen and Ray watching another game, mm-hmm. right? And that's when um, the brother-in-law, Mark, shows back up. Mm. And says basically, you know, I, I, we, my firm bought out the bank's note on the farm, and you need to sign this paperwork, you know, so that we can, because you know that we're gonna, you're gonna sell it, basically sell it to us. And if you don't, um, we're gonna foreclose. Yeah, anyway. because we own the mortgage now, basically. Yeah. Um, and he was like, I, I, you know, basically he refuses, and they get in a fight, and Karen, the daughter, falls off the back of the bleachers, and goes unconscious. Mm-hmm. and she's not breathing, and they're almost like, oh, my gosh, and Annie's like, I got to go for call 911, and the ball players all have stopped because they're looking because it's a big deal, um, and Archie looks up and kind of takes starts to take a step away from the plate, mm-hmm. um, and Ray says, hold on a second, Annie, and realizing that probably if she did call the ambulance, it's going to be way too far away. They live out in the middle of nowhere, right? right? And Archie kind of starts walking over towards them, and then he stops at the edge of the field because we've we've found out earlier with Shoeless Joe that the ghosts can't leave the field. Right. Right. 
Um, and so he ends up stepping off of the field anyway. It becomes old Doc Graham mm-hmm. and saves Annie, who apparently was just choking on a hot dog. Yeah, but they wouldn't have known that because they assumed that she has a concussion. They thought that she'd hit her head or something, right? So this part, um, from when they pick up when they pick up Archie, I like that you're seeing. We saw the old Doc Graham. Now we see the young Doc um, before he was a doctor. Right. Obviously, it's interesting to me. This was one plot hole that I didn't understand. Like. Shoeless Joe seems to remember getting kicked out of baseball. He doesn't like talking about it clearly, right? And the other guys have not been playing for a long time, right? right. First, the eight men, the rest, of the eight men out, and then all of these other famous players. But Archie, at least at first, seems to not know that he's dead and just thinks that he's going to find a local team where he can work a job and then play ball at night on weekends, which is something they used to do before their salaries got higher. Right. So yeah, it's just kind of interesting to me. Um, and and a little bit of a, like, you know, you're kind of suspending disbelief even more than you need to. But it's, it's almost like it's allowing Archie to be in his fantasy again. Yeah. But the second that Karen falls off the bleachers and is hurt, like he looks up and his, and his initial response is to step forward it. Right. And it's almost like he wakes up from the fantasy and remembers, like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. But- and it's a very sad part of the movie because he he basically sacrifices his ability to continue playing to save her. Because once he turns old and steps out of the field, he can't go back. He can't go back. And, and Kevin Costner realizes this. But before that, he finally does get... His hit. He gets his hit. And yep. he gets his real inning with all of the guys that he loved and admired. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of to me like um, when they bring somebody out who's been like suffered a horrible tragedy and they get to throw the first pitch. Right. Right. But Archie almost gets hit by the ball and he goes, and Joe goes, what did he do that for? And the and the pitcher goes, the kid winked at me. And he goes, don't wink, kid. Yeah. I just thought it was so funny. He gets his hit and they have this little thing where the bleachers are like what you would have in an elementary school. Yeah. And James Earl Jones, Kevin Coster, Amy Madigan, and Gabby Hoffman, all their characters, the only four people on the bleachers. And it seemed to me, I couldn't find a fact about this, but it looked improvised. Because... Mm. They do the wave, do the wave with four people. With four people. But James Ergold Jones goes, that's the wave. Like that. And then he stands up a second time and nobody else does it again. But it's like, to me, it looked improvised. Yeah. But it was it was so funny. They were probably told, like, cheer really big for him. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, decided to throw that in. It was a really cute moment. Um, but yeah, he got the one hit, but it's so sad. I really did cry. I did. It was so sad. And and he can't go back. But who's able to see them now? Timothy Busfield's character, right. Mark. Now Mark, because Mark saw her fall and, of course, then sees this old man come over. Right. And that almost opens his eyes. And now he's like, he looks up and he's like, where the heck did all these ballplayers come from? And they all laugh. They all start laughing. And, and the wife goes, the wife goes... Annie goes, um, it's been a long day. Let's come inside for a little bit. Yeah. And yeah, before before we get to that, I want to just wrap up the Archie Graham Oh, part, sorry. Right? Probably because I thought this was really heart... It was heartwarming and heartbreaking at the same time. Yeah. It really was kind of de- tear-jerky moment. 
is when, you know, because all this guy wanted his whole life, he was this amazing doctor, he did all these things for other people, and the only thing he really regretted was not playing ball in the major leagues and being able to show what that he thought he was good. Right. Right, and he never got to prove anything. And as he's walking through the field to go to the corn, basically into heaven or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, all the pl- ball players kind of give him like a round of applause, and they're like, "Way to go, Doc!" Because he saved this girl, right? Yeah. And then as he's walking into the corn, Shoeless Joe stops him and goes, "Hey, kid!" And he turns around and he goes, "You were good." Yeah. And to me, like that's like you have all these people that is his hero saying, "You you could have done it. You could have made it." And and that yeah no I'm gonna cry a second time <laughs> and that you chose a different path and that's okay yeah. I don't want to cry I'm sorry I'm crying on the podcast but it's such touching moment and it's just like that's the whole movie is about that you have these regrets in life and sometimes you don't get a second chance yeah and so then as you said Karen starts talking about we don't need to sell the house like. People, people will come and, 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 and see, and they're like, what? And then Terrence Mann stands up and kind of goes into this monologue, almost like prophetic, where he's like, yeah, people will come. He's like, people will come, they'll be on vacation out here, and they won't know why, but they'll come to Iowa, and they'll see this, and they'll be reminded of their childhood. They'll be reminded of times that were better, and they'll pay $20 for a ticket to watch a baseball game. And they'll just hand it over to you without even thinking. Yeah. And they'll feel like children again. And apparently, James Earl Jones, um, his, his I don't know if it was his agent, but or his friend, was somebody mm-hmm. asked him, like, okay, what do you think? How, how the How's the movie going? And he was like, I have this amazing speech about baseball that's never going to make it into this film. <laughs> <laughs> he just didn't think, because it's such a long speech, but it is, like, the inspirational moment. Yeah. And... And we and then we come to our final. So then the final the piece. final piece, the fifth little piece, the end of the the final act or whatever, is um, Shoeless Joe invites Terrence to the corn. Mm-hmm. He says, "You want to come with us?" As they're wrapping up the day, and uh, he's like, "Really?" And Ray gets angry, and he's like, "Wait a second, what? Can I come?" And he's like, "No." And he goes, <laughs> "You're not." Invited. He goes, "I made this for you. I did all this stuff. Why not?" And he goes, "You're not invited." Yeah. Right. <laughs> Um, and of course it makes sense anyway, cause Ray has to be with his family. I, it, it gets you the, get, Ray thinks he's going to go see what, whatever's there and write about it. But I got the strong idea. He's dying. Like he's Definitely. not coming back. No. Right. Um, because he's lived his whole life and you know, this was kind of a perfect moment for him to, to go into, you know? Yeah, exactly. And he's been at this point. His life's work was mostly in the 60s, but yeah. it, in the 80s, they do talk about he was writing software for video games to help kids with conflict resolution. But that's not the kind of video games kids want to play at this right. point, right? Like, now we would have that kind of stuff for, like, therapeutic purposes. Yeah. But he doesn't fit here anymore, and his he's this is part of easing his pain was coming back to the point of what he loved about his childhood before all the stuff in the 60s so for him it's even you know earlier than that um but yeah ray's reaction of like of like i never asked what's in it for me and he goes so what are you asking ray and he goes what's in it for me yeah and in in terrence says no ray he goes it has to be he goes i have to go because i wrote the article and come to find out, he had Ray had tried to connect him to this little-known article he wrote about baseball. Yeah. And he's, he refused. He's I never wrote. And he goes, I did write that article about the joys of baseball and how it yes. was something he loved. Yeah. And 
Um, and he goes, oh, all right. And Ray just kind of seems to accept that, but he's not happy. So Terrence goes off into the corn. Mm-hmm. And it's just, and Shoeless Joe turns to him and, and he says, uh, he says, if you build it, he will come. Which was, of course, what the voice said at the beginning. And he goes, yeah. And he turns and he looks and there's a catcher who's taking his gear off. And he says, if you build it, he will come. And the catcher takes his mask off, and it's the young father. It's it's Ray's dad as a young man. And we also hear again, ease his pain. Right. And then go the distance. Meaning, put yourself back out there. And right. Go play catch with your dad. And so I'm cry has, a third time so on the he, podcast. He, he comes over and he says, hey, I'm John. And he says, thanks for building this for us. It's really great. Right? And so it's the ghost of his dad as a young man. And he's like, I never, he says to Annie, he says, he looks so young. I, I never saw him young. I only saw him worn down by life. Yeah. Yeah. And so he gets to meet his granddaughter, who he never knew, and his and Annie, of course. And then they talk a little bit, and he again, he again asks Sula's Joe's question, is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. And he says, no, it's <laughs> Iowa. And he goes, could have swore it was heaven. And that's when, you know, it's a great line, that's when... Ray says, is there a heaven? Because they've been going to this right. in the corn. And he says, yeah. you know." He-, he says, oh, there is. He says, it's this place where you have everything you've ever wanted. And Ray turns and looks at the house and the farm and Annie and his what and Annie and his daughter and says, this might be heaven. Yeah. <laughs> and and then back at his dad and he says to Annie, like, he, I only saw him worn down by life. Now he has his whole life in front of him and I'm not even a glint in his eye. Um, but then he goes out and plays catch and he calls him dad. And J- John responds and doesn't contradict. So yeah. it's like, he must know. He does level. know, but he wasn't, he didn't want to be the one to say it. It yeah. seemed like, you know, before he reached out to his son to play ball with him and his son kind of rejected him. And now his son's an adult and understands what his dad went through and they have this reconciliation and that's how them. That's how it ends. That's how it ends. With Megan crying. With the two of them playing catch under the lights. And, oh, and then they pull out, and apparently the filmmakers, my last fun fact so that we don't cry through the end of this, the filmmakers asked everybody in the town to go dark for like an hour so mm-hmm. they could film the final scene which is all the cars lining hundreds up. of cars driving to because the field because people will come and i say to steve as the credits roll where are they all gonna park because yeah. <laughs> we don't have there goes left. the rest of his corn there, yeah and there's also only one bleacher for only four yeah. people can sit on have to bring a blanket but yeah it's uh it's this amazing like really touching movie and um and it it is generational but i do think it also in many ways surpasses those because everybody goes through that period of life of remembering their childhood and thinking back nostalgically and and having some regrets and wishing they could follow their dreams and wishing they could maybe have a second chance to do things differently so how was it received at the so reception uh rotten tomatoes has the film rated at 88 percent Okay. Um, with 64 reviews. It's got an average rating of 8 out of 10. The web, the website's critics' consensus reads, Field of Dreams is sentimental, but in the best way. It's a mix of fairy tale, baseball, and family togetherness. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. Roger Ebert awarded the film a perfect four stars. Admiring its ambition. This is the kind of movie Frank, Frank Capra might have directed mm. and James Stewart might have starred in. 
a movie about dreams. Uh, Carolyn James of the New York Times wrote, A work so smartly written, so beautifully filmed, so perfectly acted, that it does the almost impossible trick of turning sentimentality into true emotion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was nominated like for Academy Award. Okay. For Best Picture, it lost. What? To Driving Miss Daisy. That's nonsense. Um, also, um, no, it Dead was... Poets Society was also in the run. This, it lost to Driving Miss Daisy. That I can't believe that Field of Dreams and Dead Poets Society lost to Driving Miss Daisy. Yep. It was also nominated for Best Screenplay, and it lost to Driving Miss Daisy. Um, and it was it was nominated for Best Original Score, and it lost to The Little Mermaid. Well, that I kind of understand. <laughs> uh, in twenty in two thousand seventeen. The U.S. Library of Congress selected Field of Dreams as one of its 25 annual additions to the National Film Registry. Um, the announcement quotes film critic Leonard Maltin, who called the film a story of redemption and faith in the tradition of the best Hollywood fantasies with moments of pure magic. Mm. It um, deserved the Academy Award. I'm kind of mad about that. <laughs> in, in June 2008, <laughs> after having polled 1,500 people, AFI revealed its 10 top 10. Mm-hmm. The best ten films in ten classic American genres. Oh, okay. Field of Dreams was acknowledged as the sixth best fantasy. Really? Because it was in a fantasy genre. Interesting. Okay. So, how did we feel about it? You you are up first because I went first last time. I will give it nine balls. What? Tap one up in there, Steve. Come on. <laughs> it takes a lot to get ten. Quantum Leap got 10. I know. Feel the Dreams deserves a 10. Sorry. All right. Nine out of 10 balls. What is... Give me a little reasoning for your rating. Well, I mean, it was a phenomenal film. It was really well done, I thought. Um, You know, there are times... I think it's a great baseball film, but it's not really a baseball film. No. Right? Yeah. It's more about regret and dreams and getting the chance to take the shot you didn't have, mm-hmm. right? And easing pain and right it's all about family and basically like the American dream. Yeah. Um there's a lot of like t- like you mentioned time travel and fantasy and almost magic to it, which I really liked. I also like the historical pieces. I'm a history buff. I like the callbacks to Shoeless Joe, right? And a number of other things that were in the movie. Um, and so I thought that was all really well done. I thought that if it was well filmed, um, I think the only reason I didn't give it a 10, I really loved this movie, but the reason I didn't give it a 10 is because like you said, as a child, you were like, oh, this will be a baseball movie, you know? And I think, I think it's not something I appreciated as much as a kid mm-hmm. because it really, it, it, field of dreams. And I remember the poster and it's got, you know. It's got Kevin Costner standing in front of the baseball, and he's got a baseball bat on, yes. right? And it, and it looks very campy and fun, and it really isn't that kind of movie. No, it's not. Um, and so in, that, that's why I give it a nine. In fact, we usually watch things way ahead of time, and this one we didn't because we kept kind of not feeling like watching it. Right. And in part because we knew it was a little bit, in terms of like some of the other things we've seen, a little bit sadder, mm-hmm. a little bit more poignant. Yeah, I have to go with a 10 out of 10. I went back and forth between a 9 and a 10, but I was like, look, first of all, I've never seen this movie in color. (laughs) So that has a lot to do with it. But um, every acting choice is correct from 
every one of the actors, from Gabby Hoffman to James Earl Jones to Burt Lancaster, every choice that they make is authentic, the right acting choice. The acting is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. The score by the same guy who did Glory, where I actually didn't feel like the score fit that movie, here it fits perfectly. Mm -hmm. um, it is rousing when it needs to be rousing, and it's it's soft when it needs to be soft. Um, I think that this is a baby boomer movie for the most part, but watching it as an adult, even though it's about a different generation, like you said, there's still something to be that you can relate to. Right. Well, well, everyone can. Everyone, especially as adults, can can relate to regret. Yeah, exactly. Right? But it's a little bit of mystery. It's a little bit of fantasy. It's a little bit of a contemporary story. We ask on here, did this ruin my childhood? No, 100% no, this holds up. And it didn't even, to me, even though it's a lot about the 60s and the 80s, you know, even though you're in 80s Iowa as opposed to, like, a big city, which I think is interesting because life in rural areas tends to be a little slower and a mm -hmm. little bit back in time in some sense. It doesn't feel 80s. Because no. they're in Iowa, it feels timeless. Yes. And you could have told me that this movie came out, if you didn't know Kevin Costner or Gabby Hoffman especially, yes. you could have told me that this movie came out last year and I would have been like, okay. Yeah. Right? It's a, just a phenomenal film. Um, and, and it fits in those timeless genre kind of things. Yes. You know, Kevin Costner really enjoyed this film and he actually told somebody that one of the reasons he chose it was because the, reading the script and kind of being part of the production, he felt like it was that generation's It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, it really is. And It's a Wonderful Life is also one of my favorite films of right. all time. So that kind of makes sense to me. So... Yeah. Nine, Nine and a and half, half balls. balls. <laughs> that sounds dirty. Nine and a half baseballs this, out of ten. This movie's got balls. <laughs> Stop. Nine and a half baseballs out of ten for Field of Dreams. So we are in the uh, end of our cycle. We just watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and then Quantum Leap and then our movie choice, which was Field of Dreams. In and, we, the, and we had a bonus. And we had a bonus of all... <laughs> I never say it right. Cartoon All-Stars to the Rescue? Cartoon All-Stars to the Rescue, the 1980s PSA to help keep kids off crack. Yep. Um, and so coming up, our new cycle is My Little Pony... Mm -hmm. And then our last two summer picks, which are Salute Your Shorts, the Nickelodeon TV show. Um, and then we're going to have Camp Nowhere, which was my summer pick because it's a really... Field of Dreams is kind of a movie made for adults. Camp Nowhere is a movie made for kids. Awesome. So those are our three things coming up. So that brings us to our next segment. What is Steve willing to watch? Steve. Oh, boy. <laughs> no, that's Quantum Leap. That was last yeah. week. On today's What is Steve Willing to Watch, we're going to read some descriptions of My Little Pony. Now, I want to tell you that usually when we do this, I try to find kind of a mix between some normal descriptions of like what sounds like is going to be like a, a low-key show mm -hmm. and then some crazy ones because a lot of the 80s stuff is based on like a premise, okay? Right. Every single My Little Pony episode sounds crazy to me. Mm. So it's going to be quite a bit of fun. Are you ready? I am. All right. Season 1, Episode 2, The End of Flutter Valley, Part 2. 
The witches enlist the help of Queen Bumble and the bees to steal Flutter Valley's sunstone. Okay. Number two, season one, episode 11, The Ghost of Paradise Estate. A ghost comes to Paradise Estate to scare the little ponies who just want to live a peaceful life filled with songs and games. I can't read this Number three, The Glass Princess, part one. The ponies must stop Squirk from flooding Dream Valley and enslaving its inhabitants. Number four, season one, episode 45, Revolt of Paradise Estate. A peddler gives the ponies some magic paint that brings their furniture to life. Hmm. And number five, season one, episode 48, Through the Door, part two. The arrival of fairy tale characters in Ponyland causes their stories to vanish from Megan's world. All right. I have no idea what any of that stuff meant that you read to me. <laughs> I don't either. So, um, I mean, isn't it about time isn't it about time that you did another special with your mom for my no. little ponies? Oh, my mom wouldn't even know my little pony. Um So we have the witches, we have a ghost, we have um squirk flooding the valley we have magic paint bringing furniture to life and we have a glass uh fairy tale characters i'll go with the ghost okay so we're gonna watch because this had this movie had ghosts that's true the ghost of paradise estate um i'm going to pick should we do the pilot to kind of establish what the world is and the characters and all that it's up to you i think that we could just kind of figure out what's going on i'm gonna go with the magic paint so magic paint brings furniture to life and a ghost is trying to up upend the life of the ponies on their estate okay so that's what's coming up for uh next time it is my little pony and we will likely talk about bronies and more and our i'm not dressing up and we do have a my little pony themed candy so i'm excited about that okay so that's it for us thanks guys so much for listening have a great week This podcast is supported by its creators and listeners like you. Help keep our show ad-free by visiting our website, StopRuiningMyChildhood.com. There you can find links to our social media. And this very podcast you're currently listening to. Both Megan and I are authors, and you can find links to our books on our About page. And on our Watch With Us page, you can find videos and links for all the shows and movies we discuss on the podcast. And more importantly, links to buy the nostalgic snacks we review as well. We also post bonus content about once a month. So like, subscribe, and follow. For a small independent podcast like ours, it really does make a difference.